Well, today we will complete our study of John chapter 19, John chapter 19, which means there are only two chapters left in the fourth gospel, and I was sharing with someone this past week that I will miss our study of this book uh, in a great, great way. It's been a blessing to my own heart. But today we will complete John chapter 19. Also, today is three Sundays, actually, in a row that I am beginning the sermon with a review of some aspect of theology. Two weeks ago, we reviewed what's come to be called the active and passive obedience of Christ. Then last Sunday, we reviewed the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, his perfect deity and his perfect humanity. Well, today, we will briefly discuss another doctrine, the doctrine of the atonement. Atonement refers to Christ's death on the cross to pay for, to atone for sin. But through the decades and centuries, there has been some erroneous theories put forth about the atonement, specifically about the reason for the atonement. For example, one is called the ransom theory. Those who hold that view and try to spread that view, base it on a verse in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, where it does say that the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many, to make a a payment to rescue, ransom many. Well, the problem with the wrong theory is that they say that Jesus died to offer a ransom payment, to offer that payment of his blood to the devil who held mankind in sin's captivity. Well, the problem is man does owe a debt, but he owes a debt to God because of sin, not to Satan. It's the breaking of God's law that holds sinful man in a state of condemnation. Another wrong theory has been called the subjective theory. It still exists today. It says that when Christ died, he did not accomplish anything objective. He was merely offering himself as an example of what sacrifice looks like so we can follow that sacrifice. And so this theory really only cares about the subjective experience that we have in that as we learn what sacrifice looks like, It denies any objective achievement in Jesus' death. Well, obviously, neither of those theories satisfy what Scripture teaches. To understand the biblical reason for the atonement, we must start then with understanding why death even exists at all. It is death that is the penalty for breaking God's law. That is, it's the penalty for disobedience. Now, that penalty was stated by God at the very beginning of human history, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The first man and woman, Adam and Eve, that God created, were told this, Genesis two sixteen. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. Later, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, about that pronouncement of that penalty. 
and what happened in the garden with Adam's sin. Romans 5.12 says, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So again, when Adam sinned, the entire human race was plunged into sin, and therefore everyone born after them was born with a sin nature, and that means everyone is born with this natural tendency to disobey God, which therefore means everyone is deserving of that penalty, death. And we've all confirmed the fact that we do have that sin nature, and therefore we've confirmed the fact of our condemnation by the reality that we do commit our own personal sins. Jesus' death, therefore, was God's solution to save us from this penalty that we deserve. And for that reason, we call his death this, penal substitutionary atonement. That is the right way of understanding the reason for the cross, not the ransom theory, not the subjective theory, or any other man-created theory, but it is penal substitutionary atonement. That term penal refers to the punishment. Jesus bore the punishment, the penalty, prescribed by God for disobedience. And he prescribes that because of his own unyielding justice. But. Jesus never disobeyed. So it wasn't his sin he was being punished for, which is why the word substitutionary is so important to us. That term points to the fact that it was someone else's sin he was dying for. He substituted in the place of his people, and thus it was their sin that was being atoned for. Now that fact that Jesus would die as a substitute was prophesied centuries before it happened. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He, the Messiah, Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. So we're the ones that deserve the penalty, that deserve the death as a consequence of our sins, but Jesus substituted in our place on the cross, offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy God's law against the debt of our sin. And as our substitute, here's what he accomplished by paying for the penalty of our sin. Some words that are very dear to us. What did he accomplish? First of all, propitiation. Propitiation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, He loved us, God loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That term means satisfaction, to satisfy. Jesus' death, His atoning death, satisfied God's holy justice and holy wrath against our sin. We love that word propitiation. Jesus accomplished that in his atoning death. He also accomplished this, redemption, another wonderful biblical term, redemption. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What wonderful words. 
Redemption refers to the idea of paying a price to deliver us, to rescue us, to redeem us from the bondage of sin. Redemption, therefore, speaks of God saving us from a situation that we could never get ourselves out of. One more term that is so dear to us. In Christ's atoning death was accomplished propitiation, redemption, but also reconciliation. Reconciliation. We are reconciled to the heavenly Father because of the blood of Christ. An exchange took place. That's what happened. God imputed our sin to Christ and imputed Christ's perfect righteousness to us so that we can be accepted, reconciled to God. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, Paul states it very bluntly and clearly. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. So on the cross, we studied it last time. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, it was these accomplishments that were done. Our, the propitiation of our sins, our redemption, our reconciliation, it was done, it was finished. No wonder the Bible presents the resurrected and ascended, glorified Jesus as now being seated in the place of supreme honor in heaven because his work His atoning work was done. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. And as we saw in our study last time, Jesus had control of everything about his death there. He had control about even over the timing of his death. He did not die until he chose to die. He did not die until the precise moment called for in God's predetermined plan. Scripture says he yielded his spirit. He was not a victim. It was the death of a victor. But just so you'll know on the subject of timing, as far as the chronological timing of his death went, Mark chapter 15, verse 25 tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That would mean approximately 9 a.m. on Friday morning. Mark 15, verse 34 tells us that he died at the ninth hour. That's approximately 3 p.m. That tells us that Jesus was only on the cross for about six hours, and that is amazing. Most people who were crucified linger for two or three days before they died, suffering. But Jesus died relatively quickly, and that's because his atoning work as a substitute to pay the penalty of death that his people deserved was finished. Well, the question is, once he was dead... Then what happened? What happened to his body? And that is what we are looking at today. We're going to study verses 31 through 42. Yes, I did say that correctly. Verse 31 all the way through verse 42. 
This passage breaks down into two basic segments related to what happened to Jesus after he died. Here's the first segment. We'll call it, number one, the confirmation of his death. And this was very important for it to happen. Verse 31, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And we saw that term preparation back in verse 14. And there we said that this phrase, the day of preparation, was normally used to refer to Fridays, the day they would get everything prepared, everything ready for the Sabbath, which is our Saturday. And that year, the Sabbath, you'll remember, was a special one because it fell on the day after Passover. Passover was that Friday. This confirms that Jesus was crucified on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. And their Sabbath, Saturday, started at 6 p.m. on Friday. That's the way they measured days and time. But the point being made here is that the Jews, meaning the Jewish religious leaders, the authorities, were concerned about having to do something with Jesus' body And they were especially concerned that they needed to do whatever needed to be done before sundown on that Friday because that's when Sabbath began. Now, it's important to know that the normal Roman practice was not to take victims down as soon as they died. Their practice was to leave crucified victims on the cross not only until they died, and that could take days, but then leave their rotting bodies hanging there to be devoured by vultures and scavenging animals. Why would they do that? Well, they crucified people along the road. People walking by would see that. Vultures on the bodies, the bodies decomposing. They did that as a further indignity to the victims. But even though that was the normal practice, sometimes it was necessary to hasten the deaths of those hanging on the cross. Maybe they were just going too long. Or there could be other reasons, and that was the situation here. The Jews wanted to make sure that they dealt with the bodies before the Holy Sabbath. So how did the Roman soldiers go about hastening the deaths of someone suffering on a cross? It was gruesome. To do that, the soldiers would smash the shin bones of the victims with an iron bar or an iron mallet. That brutal act would obviously be a terrible shock to their bodies, to their systems. In addition, it could cause more blood loss, but primarily... This step prevented the victim from pushing up with his legs to keep pressure off his chest cavity and therefore keep his chest cavity open so he could breathe. Without the feet, the legs, to push up, they would have to pull up with their arms, and the strength in their arms then would begin to quickly fade and be insufficient, and suffocation would follow. By contrast, the Jews 
handled dead bodies differently. They would not want some sort of body left exposed for days. It all had to do to instruction in the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy chapter 31, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 23. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, A corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land. Now, the Jews did not crucify people, so that verse was referring to what they would do with someone after the execution. Execution usually by stoning. Then they would take the dead body and hang it up for a few hours for further indignity and as a lesson to other people. But the Mosaic law said, don't let them hang there all night. A body hanging like that, decomposing, would defile the land. And a person hanging like that, according to the law, was under God's curse. So don't leave them hanging, exposing a dead body that would desecrate the land. The Jewish religious authorities knew about that verse. So it says they wanted to ask Pilate to hasten Jesus' death by having his legs broken. And the soldiers did obey the command, and they went to seek to carry out their gruesome task. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. Remember, Jesus was crucified with two criminals, two thieves, one on either side. It appears that the soldiers started from the outside to work their way into the middle. But when the soldiers got to the middle and they were about to smash Jesus's shin bones, they discovered they didn't need to do that, verse 33. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He had already died an unusually quick, speedy death. Now, perhaps you've heard of this, that through the centuries, there have been skeptics, especially early on after all that, but they're still here today, skeptics who deny the reality of Jesus rising from the dead. And their reasoning is something that has been labeled the swoon theory. According to this theory, Jesus was not raised from the dead because he never died. Instead, on the cross, he only swooned. That means fainted. And then they say that his followers got his body off the cross, secreted the body away someplace where he recovered from his wounds, and that they did that so that they could have uh, the opportunity of falsely claiming a resurrection. How silly that is. He was recovered from his wounds. You remember he was scourged brutally twice, the second time using that cat of nine tails that ripped flesh off his body, exposing his inner organs. He didn't go to some secret place and recover. Listen, the Roman soldiers were experts. They had dealt with crucified victims on a regular basis. They had seen corpses of every description. They were expert judges on determining whether or not a criminal on the cross was dead. So when these Roman soldiers came to the middle cross, that's what they found, a dead man. And don't think they would lie about this. They had nothing to gain, everything to lose. If they shirked their duties, they would be punished, possibly even executed. 
So when they say they found Jesus to be dead, they were absolutely certain of it. So instead of breaking his legs, a soldier did something else that did confirm the death. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The spear that was used refers to what we might think of as a long lance or a javelin. And the word pierced means that there was very deep penetration into the chest cavity, so deep that the wound by this lance brought this sudden flow of blood and water. John's gospel is the only account that provides that detail. Now, through the centuries, medical experts disagree disagree on physically what all that can possibly mean, but regardless how the medical community tries to work this out, the point is that what happened was further proved to the soldiers that the person was dead. That's what it meant when they did that, and blood, separated blood and water came out. So, since John is the only writer that mentions this, the blood and the water, he takes some pains here to establish the credibility of what he's saying, the credibility of his witness. Look at verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may also believe. The point is, there was nothing less than eyewitness testimony to Jesus' death. There was eyewitness testimony to the flow of blood and water. There was eyewitness testimony to the fact that the soldiers did not have to break his legs. All of that. Testimony by whom? The pronoun he is John's way of referring to himself. He saw it all. And the goal of his eyewitness testimony, he says, is that people would believe, that people would come to express true saving faith. There is a false faith that does not save. True saving faith is resting in, trusting in the finished work of Christ alone. Well, next, John does want to make it clear that these events, not only did they prove his death, they actually fulfilled Scripture. Two passages from the Bible. Verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Here's one, not a bone of him shall be broken. Verse 37, and again another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. First, the fact that Jesus was spared having his legs broken fulfills Scripture. It's hard to identify one that's precisely this wording. It's likely referring to a couple of Scriptures, one being Exodus 12, verse 46, and the other one being Numbers 9, verse 12. Both of these are discussing the lamb that was sacrificed for Passover. I'll read just one of them. Here's Numbers 9, verse 12. They shall leave none of it until morning. In other words, the Passover sacrificial lamb, they would eat it all. Nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. The Passover lamb, what they celebrated for centuries to celebrate God's deliverance of the people from the death angel in Egypt. They sacrificed that lamb. They did not they made sure no bones were broken. In the New Testament, how is Jesus portrayed? As the Passover lamb, the fulfillment of all that, the Passover lamb slain for his people. Paul says it clearly, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. 
Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. There's another passage, though. The fact that the Lord's side was pierced, that goes back to Zechariah 12, verse 10, a passage that was one of those prophecies that had a near fulfillment and then an ultimate secondary fulfillment. Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That was fulfilled in the initial sense of the cross, the piercing. We know from the book of Revelation that it's going to be fulfilled another way in an ultimate sense. When Jesus comes back again, Scripture tells us many Jews are going to be saved the remnant, the saved, the elect remnant of Jews at that time. That's why it's quoted in Revelation. At the second coming, the repentant remnant of Israel will mourn over the reality of understanding that they, their people, had rejected and killed their king, their Messiah. But the point of citing these verses is just to say that Jesus, by giving up his life when he did, He assured that the soldiers fulfilled prophecy that confirmed Jesus' death. That's segment number one here, the confirmation of his death. Here's the second segment. Number two, the completion of his burial. The completion of his burial, starting in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he, meaning Joseph, came and took away his body. So though the Romans prefer to leave bodies on the cross to visibly decompose and provide fodder for the vultures, they did permit the Jews to bury the bodies. But crucified Criminals, the Jews did not want crucified criminals in their normal graveyards or in their normal family tombs. Instead of allowing the bodies of a sinner like that to be placed in a family tomb and and therefore desecrate the other bodies of the family that were there, they would dispose of a criminal's body a different way. They would throw it in the dump that was created outside the city, a dump that was constantly burning with fire, that went by the name Gehenna. Gehenna became symbolic for the fires of hell. That is where Jesus' body was destined to be thrown. But there was a prophecy about something that would happen with Jesus' body, and it was not that. Here's the issue. Isaiah had prophesied that Jesus would be buried a certain way. Isaiah 53, verse 9. That in his grave, in his death, it says he was with a rich man. A rich man. How was Jesus going to escape having his body thrown in the burning dump like other criminals? How was he going to be buried with a, a rich man that fulfilled prophecy? He didn't come from a wealthy family. None of his disciples were exceptionally rich. Well, the answer is God moved upon the heart of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea to handle the body. 
So back to that appeal to Pilate. Here's Mark's account of the summary of what happened. Mark 15, 44 and 45. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. So get this picture in your mind, Joseph of Arimathea wanting the body, Pilate going, well, this is awfully quick. I'm not sure he's dead. So it says that he summoned the centurion, Pilate did, who gave leadership to the soldiers at the crucifixion. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead and ascertaining this from the centurion that Jesus was indeed dead. He granted the body to Joseph. Now, concerning Joseph of Arimathea, we don't know much about him. We don't even know for sure where Arimathea was located. That's what it means when you say Joseph of Arimathea. We do have some information about him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark tells us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish authorities. Matthew says he was rich. Mark and Luke both say that he was A man who was genuinely looking for the kingdom of God, he had an expectation of the Messiah. Matthew and John both refer to him as a disciple of Jesus. John alone, though, is the one that adds that little comment, but he was a secret disciple because of fear of the Jews. So here's what happened. Somewhere during Jesus' ministry, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, had come to believe Jesus was indeed indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Yet he was still a part of the Sanhedrin, so he kept his belief in Jesus to himself out of fear. Fear of reprisal, fear of persecution, fear of of, uh, ostracism, all because of how the Jewish religious leaders would treat him. He was a secret disciple, and normally that kind of secrecy about faith in Jesus, that would be condemned in the Gospel of John. He's already done that once. Let me take you back to John 12 for a moment. I'll read verses 42 and 43. John 12, 42. Many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogues, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. However, Joseph had cleared himself in John's mind by the time John wrote this gospel. Joseph had cleared himself because of the courageous action he took in going to Pilate. I mean, think about it. By going to do that, he exposed himself to to even greater reprisal. He was asking the Roman governor for the body of a man who had been crucified, executed as a rival king to the emperor. But Joseph, knowing that, did it anyway. The cross, it changed his life. And once given permission, he immediately took Christ's body and hurriedly began to complete the preparation for his burial. Notice, though, that in this endeavor, Joseph was assisted by another man who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came. Now, only John mentions this part that Nicodemus played in all of this. And he does throw in this little reference that he has talked about Nicodemus once before in this book, back in John chapter 3. Verse 1, 
There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus had some questions for Jesus, but he didn't want anybody to know that he was seeking Jesus out for a Q&A time. He waited until nightfall so that no one would know he was meeting with Jesus. But now Nicodemus was not hiding. He and Joseph courageously braved the wrath of the rest of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, to take care of the body of Jesus And Nicodemus did not come empty-handed either. Verse 39 continues, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. That's measured in the way they measured it. That mixture of spices in our measurement would be a little over 65 pounds, the way Americans measure that today. 65 pounds. Still a lot. I was thinking about that. I lift weights. I lift 12 pounds, a 12-pound weight on a regular basis. I just upped it from 10 recently to 12. Very excited about that. So when I read 65 pounds, it won't happen in my lifetime that I get up to that. It was a large amount. In fact, the kind of, of amount that would be used to anoint the body of a king or someone rich or a prominent person in the community. And the spice mix include myrrh. That was a gummy resin that had a very wonderful fragrance to it. The Jews turned it into powdered form, and then they would mix it with aloes. That was a powdered form of sandalwood, which was also very aromatic, very aromatic fragrant spices. The Egyptians used spices like this, but they used it in embalming. The Jews did not embalm bodies. So what was the purpose for them? Very simple, very blunt. The spices were simply to stifle for as long as possible the odor of decomposition. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Another one of those cut of their customs. They would take linen cloth and usually cut it into strips, and they would load those strips with the mixture of spices, the myrrhs and the aloes, and they would wind that heavy laden cloth around the body. And then they would take even more spice and pack it around the outside of the body and under the body once they put the body in the tomb. You know what this action tells us something? That they did all this? It was obvious that neither Jesus nor Nicodemus nor the ladies that you read about in Luke 23, none of them were expecting Jesus to rise from the grave. If they had listened to Jesus and believed what he had told them about that, they would not have bothered to prepare his body so thoroughly for burial. But in any case, they did it. They quickly... And they thoroughly prepared the body of Jesus, his dead body, for burial. But burial where? Verse 41. Now in the place he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. John tells us that this place where Jesus was crucified, it was 
a tomb, a new tomb in a garden. Tombs in that day are not like ours. I'm sure you've heard this taught before. Tombs were like caves. They were carved out of the uh, sandstone, the solid sandstone that was common in that area. And typically inside there would be another chamber. There might be two chambers, could be just one. There might be a little foyer and then an inner chamber. But either way, there would be this chamber inside there where a body or even several bodies of a family could be laid. And the entrance was typically then sealed by rolling a stone in in a groove that had been cut there in front of the opening. Matthew gives us a summary of that of what was happening with Joseph, Matthew 27, 59 and 60. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. It was his family tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And normally, once placed inside, the body would lie on the slab in there until it finally did completely decompose. could take a while, but once that happened, it was common for them to even go back in at some point and to gather the bones and place them in an ornate box called an ossuary. Notice that John emphasizes not only that the tomb was new, but that no one had ever been laid in it. Why would he mention that little fact? I think it's because he's preparing us for what's coming in chapter 20. On the third day, the tomb was found to be empty of a body. Only one body, though. There weren't others in there. Only one body had disappeared. Only one person could have been resurrected. He prepares us for that. Just a comment about the garden location. Only John includes that fact. The word for garden actually uh, suggests something substantial. It was a larger area, like a small orchard with lots of trees in it. It's believed that the site of that garden tomb today is where a particular church sits. It's the church that's been there for a long time called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you are a tourist and you go to Israel... I did that way back in 1993, a trip with Grace to You Radio. Over 400 people went, over 450 actually. A trip with John MacArthur to Israel and all that to see the sites. One of the sites you're taken to is a garden tomb. We had a service there. We were given permission on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, to have a service there in that garden in front of that tomb with Pastor MacArthur teaching, and I and another pastor sang a song together. 450 people scattered out amongst the trees there. It was a glorious time, a wonderful memory I have. But all the time we were there, we were understanding that was not the actual garden. The one they take you to, it's, it's a garden like the one that would have existed in the first century. The tomb that you can walk into, and you can go on YouTube, and you can see pictures of the garden and the tomb. It's like the tomb that would have existed in the first century, but today there's a big church sitting on top of what is is probably the actual site. Well, anyway, the passage ends, verse 42. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This garden tomb was not that far from the site of the crucifixion, and that was a great help in God's providence 
since Sabbath was almost upon them at sundown on that Friday when all their work would have to cease. So yes, it was convenient for them that that garden tomb was not too far away, it was nearby, but there was something more significant going on. There was a more significant reason why the Lord needed to be buried in such a rushed way before sundown. It has to do with what Jesus himself said was going to happen and how long he would be in the grave. Remember these words from Matthew 12, verse 40? He said this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As I've mentioned, the Jews counted days from 6 until 6, 6 p.m. till 6 p.m. And also in their way of reckoning, they would count any portion of a day and call it a day. So Jesus needed to be buried while it was still on Friday. And he was. He was therefore in the tomb part of Friday. The Jews would count that as a day. All day Saturday and part of Sunday. It fulfilled what he said. And this tells us that God was not only orchestrating all the details of Jesus' death, but God even orchestrated the details of the burial to complete that burial according to how he had purposed for it to happen. Well, I just want to close this morning by giving you three facts that I couldn't help but be reminded of as I studied this account. You'll be reminded of these as well. Here's reminder number one. We are reminded of the significance of Jesus' burial. That's the most obvious reminder this was a funeral of sorts, the funeral for Jesus, it, if, you, if you can even call it that. It was not a public affair. It was a private affair. Only a few people attended this funeral. But regardless, his burial was significant in a couple of ways, very important to us. Most obviously, it proved the reality of his death. His burial placed the matter beyond dispute. And we know in John chapter 20, we'll find out that it was not only linen cloth with spices that was around the body of Jesus, but also a, a face cloth was wrapped around his face. That was a normal custom. So the point is the preparation of his body with all the spices, the wrapping of his body in the linen, the face cloth put on him, all were confirming he's dead. No reasonable doubt to that fact. It's important for a second reason. His death and burial are important to certify the truth of what's coming, the resurrection. Without, without a death, without a burial, then the sealing of that tomb, there's no evidence that he rose from the dead. And since the tomb was cut out of rock, there was no secret pathway to get to it, to steal his body. Let's appreciate the significance of Jesus' burial. It is proof that he died, and it's proof of the resurrection. Reminder number two, we're reminded of the need to boldly proclaim our faith in Christ. Joseph, for a while, was a secret disciple. God doesn't want secret disciples. And no doubt, we understand that not being secret and living for Christ can bring reprisals 
ostracism from the world. True Christians everywhere can understand what it means to face scorn because of their testimony of their love for Christ. And in many places today, believers daily face the fear of arrest or even bodily harm and death. So I couldn't help but think about this, be reminded of the need to boldly proclaim our faith in Christ. I couldn't help but make the connection to this, of the day that we're living in. We live in a day where people are coming out of the closet, as it's called, and honored for doing that to boldly proclaim their sexual perversion. How sad it is if we who are God's people are afraid to come out. But as believers in Jesus, just because of the fear of what people will do or say. In Scripture, that's called the fear of man. In Proverbs 29, 25, reminds us that the fear of man brings a snare, a trap, a bondage. And Paul says in Galatians 1.10 that if we're striving to please men, we cannot be a disciple of Christ. So we do need to be clear and bold about our love for Christ and His Word. That's what the Lord expects. And think about it this way. If, if, we, if we aren't bold and clear in that, we lose out on the blessing of living for Him here. Listen to how Richard Phillips puts it. Are you a secret disciple? Phillips asked. Do you believe in Jesus but say and do nothing openly for Him? Then realize that the years of your earthly life are speeding by, and soon you will never have the opportunity to give Jesus glory in a world that denies him. Meanwhile, how greatly you impoverish your soul as you forfeit fellowship with Christ that comes by living boldly for him in this world. We are aware of how much the world is against us. We are aware of how much the the, the, the overwhelming winds of culture are blowing against the things we believe in from Scripture. But we cannot just seek to blend in with it. If you do struggle with this, if you've been a secret or timid disciple, timid in your allegiance to Christ, then pray about that. Pray to God for boldness. Pray for boldness that will make you useful, for the boldness that will give you a peace in your own conscience and even increase your own sense of assurance. But a caution here. Be sure you're proclaiming what the world really needs to hear, the truth that can lead to salvation. I say that, and I've said it many times along the way, that we can betray our mission by proclaiming things that aren't really the gospel. Especially examine your online posts. So many claiming to be Christians are using that opportunity to proclaim patriotism and external morality and just to talk about the things we're against. Listen, on your posts and in your conversations, talk about the cross. Talk about the good news of the gospel and the power of God's word to change hearts. Be bold, but be bold about what's most important. One more reminder, number three, we are reminded of our own future death and resurrection. We're all going to die. Job 14, verses 1 and 2, 
compares us to something. It says that man is short-lived and full of turmoil. Verse 2 says he's like a flower. He comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says there's a time to be born, to give birth, and there's a time to die. In the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 14, our lives are like a mist or or like a, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes today, vanishes away. Hebrews 9, verse 27, it's even an appointment. It's appointed for men to die once, then comes judgment. So that's the reality. Unless the Lord returns, the reality is that no one can cheat death, not permanently. It will always win in the end. Scripture even says it's our enemy, but followers of Christ do not need to fear death. When we die, our souls depart, our bodies in death to go to be in the presence of God in heaven. It's just our bodies that are placed in the grave, and there they are awaiting something, resurrection. And it's something we are reminded of in the burial of Jesus. Just as he was buried, and just as he was raised from the grave, so God also promises that our bodies will likewise be raised into glory. And that's part of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus conquered death for us. Hear the words of Jesus himself, John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, meaning ultimately and eternally. By dying, which was verified in his burial, and then by being raised from the dead, Christ destroyed death and assured our own resurrection as well. I leave you with the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's thank him for that. Father, we're grateful for this note of victory that we are reminded of, even in the burial of Jesus, because it was all under your providential control, your sovereign plan, nothing by accident. We thank you that he died to atone for the sins of your people. We thank you that you're a saving, merciful, gracious God. You love to save repentant, believing sinners. So Lord, help us to have the assurance that comes from knowing that our own death is not final. Lord, give us the strength as well to boldly live for you in this world and to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Father, I do pray for anyone here who cannot say they have that assurance that their sins are forgiven. May you give them saving faith, the faith that would cause them to reach out to you for the forgiveness of their sin as they trust in the completed work of Christ on the cross. We give you the glory for that saving work in our Savior's name. Amen.